God, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy that you display in our life each and every, every day. And God, um, as we come together this morning, we ask that your spirit be so real. God, allow us to have true self-evaluation of ourself. Help us to understand our struggles, but more importantly, God, help us to understand the greatness of you and how much greater you are than those things we go through. And so this morning, God, I ask that your presence be so real. God, that your anointing be strong and that you penetrate hearts and lives this morning. God, that I would step aside from my own personal thoughts, and God, you would speak directly to each and every person here. And so today, God, we commit this service to you, and we ask in your name that you be so powerful. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so we've been uh, in this series for four weeks called The Problem with I. And what we've been examining is how when we have inner struggle that leads to pride and, and the things that we go through, it actually causes a bunch of other things to arise in our life. And so week one, we looked at our insecurities and how when we look in ourselves, all we find is insecurity. Week two, we looked at when we look inside of ourselves, all we have is insomnia. Last week, we spent some time looking at the impulsiveness that comes from us whenever we look at ourselves. And, uh, and this week, I want to continue that, that and kind of conclude it with this thought of inferiority. Um, I know last week I mentioned that we were going to talk about indebtedness, um, but I've decided to do that this summer. And so we're going to do inferiority. Uh, next week, we'll start a new series called Broken Hallelujah, and it'll go all the way to Easter Sunday. Um, so I'd love for you to be a part of that. We're just going to examine some men who God put on a great path, and seemingly they had a broken hallelujah in the middle, but God caused them to be victorious despite those things. You know, five weeks ago when the series started, um, God placed upon my heart this topic of inferiority. Um, I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't really know how to do it. And to be honest with you, inferiority and insecurity, they're both very similar to each other. Um, uh, but anyhow, as, as God has dealt with me over these past several weeks, um, He's kind of clarified some things for me. And so today I want to look at inferiority, and, and we're going to jump around a little bit. There'll be times that we look at ourselves, we look at other people, we look at people in the Bible, but we get this idea of what inferiority is, the roots it takes in our life, and then ultimately how God has led us to overcome those places of inferiority in, inside of us. You know, inferiority, the definition of it is a persistent sense of inadequacy or a tendency to underrate oneself and one's abilities. How many of you, without a show of hands, battles with inferiority in your own personal life? And see, that's the problem with I, is that I wrestle with inferior feelings of other people as I compare myself, and I realize very quickly when I look at me, I will always fall in comparison to others. And it's why over these past weeks as we've looked at the problem with I is that we've put this focus on not me, but God. Because see, when I look at me, I am an insecure person. And when I look at me, it does cause me to lay awake at bed with insomnia. And when I look at me, it causes impulsive decisions. And when I look at me, I see myself in fear to everyone that surrounds me. And so I hope you've gathered that over the past four or five weeks. And, and I hope you understand that these self-consumed struggles that we have are not the plans that God has for us. You know, when I look at myself in either pride or condemnation, the results that come from that really tear me down and cause depression and cause even sometimes anger and conflict in places where it shouldn't be. And so it's important that we keep our eyes focused on God. You know, as a man, one of the toughest things it is for me to admit is that I have feelings of inferiority. Because as the man of my family, I feel like I have to be the strong one. But the truth is, I struggle with being inferior to other people. I see 
the dad who is at all the basketball games, all the sporting events. He's at every play. And I see how great of a father he is. And honestly, it causes me to feel inferior to him. Or I look at the man and it seems like him and his wife have this picture-perfect marriage. They never argue. They never fight. They never have a disagreement. And I look at it and I feel inferior as a husband. You know, women aren't excused from this either. They look and they compare themselves, their abilities, their looks, everything about them. They compare it to others and what they really begin to battle is this inferiority complex. We, in comparison to others, will always feel inferior because we only see the outside of an imperfect person. When you see me in public, you see the best me there is. If you hang out with me behind closed doors, you'll see a guy that I wish I wasn't. And when we compare ourselves to other people, what we see is the best version of who they are. And when we compare ourselves to them, what we see is the worst version of who we are. And in comparison, we feel inferior to the person they are and the person that we feel like we are. I know this personally, when I can't live up to the persona that I projected upon another person, I begin to tear them down to bring them to my level. Have you ever experienced this before? You look at somebody and go, man, they're the perfect, he's the perfect husband. But I mean, he's losing his hair, so he's not as perfect as me. And, and to be honest with you, uh, his clothes are a little wrinkled. And, and we begin to just tear the person down because if I can't meet their standard, then they have to come down and meet me at my standard. And inferiority has always caused division in people's lives, in churches, and in communities. It's because if I can't reach them, then I have to drag them down. It's the beautiful thing of what the gospel is, is that God knew that we had these complexes about ourselves that if I can't meet that standard, I'm going to pull them to me. And God knew that he had a standard that we could never meet. And so instead of us pulling God down to us. He just willingly came down to us. And he says, you'll never meet my standards, so I'll come down and meet the standard for you. It's the beautiful thing of the gospel. But unfortunately, when we look at other people, we can't accept the beauty of the gospel. We see the ugliness of sin. And so it's an unhealthy way to deal with our inferiority complex, but unfortunately it's the norm for people. Is I bring them down to me. You know, I've admitted from day one what an imperfect human that I am. As a matter of fact, um, I probably said it a little too much. There's probably been times that you wanted to charge me for a therapy session because I've talked about my imperfections. But it's important that you understand that I'm not the person that you may project me to be. And that I do struggle. And I say that because I battle with inferiority. And I look at other people and I place them on a pedestal and I go, man, I can never meet the standard of who that person is. I can never be what they've called me to be. I'll sit in a room with the people who do the same thing as me and go, I'm the worst out of all these people. And so from day one, I've told you how imperfect of a person that I am. That every single day I screw up and I make withdrawals from God's grace bank. That I need it every single day in order to get me through what I'm facing. Admittedly, I lose my temper quicker than I wish I would. I get my feelings hurt quicker than I wish I would. I react unpleasantly to times that require pleasant reaction. I develop feelings about people before I even meet them. And I struggle from day to day in my walk, and so please never place me on a pedestal or I'll be, quick to t or I'll be the first one to tell you that I will fall from that pedestal in your eyes very quick. Because inferiority as a pastor is something that I struggle with. I hear what this guy does and what that guy does, and I go, man, I can't do those things. How do they do that? 
How do they juggle the things they do? How do they accomplish the things they accomplish? And as a result, I've been listening to this stuff from Thomas Rayner. Because my inferiority drives me to be better. Of course, after I get through self-loathing, it helps me to be a better person. And, and I don't know if you realize this, but um, I've made it past the norm for a pastor to be at a church. Did you know that? 18 months is when uh, he says that most pastors leave their church, and I've been here 21 months. And so, uh, yeah, it's a long tenure, right? And so uh, as I was listening to him talk about some of this stuff, I was curious why the turnover at that mark. Because I was in youth ministry before this, and, the, and that mark's even lower. They leave about a year, you have turnover in youth ministry. And I thought, why? Why do we cycle through so many preachers and, and people in ministry? And so he calls these cycles of ministry, and I wanted to share them with you so you can understand um, the inferiority that I face, right? Cycles of ministry, he, he calls the first year of ministry the honeymoon period. You've probably heard that term before. And if, you've, and if you've been married before, you understand what the honeymoon period is, right? When my wife and I got married, there was nothing she could do that was wrong. Everything she did was amazing in my eyes. Oh, she left the door open. Let me just go close it for her. That's so cute. You know, everything was beautiful and cute in, in my eyes when we first got married. And so that's the honeymoon period in ministry when everything that the person who's leading the ministry does is perfect. And then he talks about years two and three, and he calls them the crisis years. Right? And, and I wrote down the quote from what he said. He said, it's now apparent that the pastor is fully human. He has not lived up to the precise expectation of many of the members and this phase includes a number of conflicts and struggles. Indeed, it is the most common time that a pastor chooses to leave the church or is forced to terminate, be terminated. If you remember, after that year of marriage wears off, things that you never noticed before all of a sudden become to be illuminated in your eyes, right? Like, for a year you left the toilet seat up, but now the honeymoon's wore off and your spouse is like, why do you leave the toilet seat up? And you go, I've been doing it since I was a teenager. What do you mean? Right? Or you notice for the first time that the person you laid in bed with for a year snores. Right? It's because all of a sudden we begin to see people for who they truly are. And it's in those moments that we begin to struggle with understanding who they are and struggling with who we are. And it's why in ministry it's easier for people just to, to go their separate ways. And the same is true in marriage. Early in marriage, if you can make it through it, you tend to last a long time. Right? I was reading and it said eight years was the mark of an average divorce. And if they made it past eight years, the marriage tend to make it all the way through. And so I, I look at that and I think, in ministry, we are battling right now. We're battling in ministry. And so I look at men around me and I wonder... Why are they so great? And my inferiority begins to rise up, rise up even more. I look at churches and I wonder, why aren't we there? Right? And a lot of this stuff I know you wrestle with too. This isn't something I'm saying from up here that you've never heard before. You struggle with these things too because you love this place. And you look on a Sunday morning and you see people absent that's normally here and you go, why? How is it the First Baptist Church can have all their people show up and we can't? Right? It's because we've put a persona that doesn't exist on people. How is it that Eric gets up and preaches for 20 minutes and I want to go to sleep, but pastor so-and-so preaches and I can listen to him for hours? I don't know. 
when I was uploading my sermons, I get that. I was like, wow, how do they deal with that for even 10 minutes, right? It's inferiority because we're comparing ourselves to imperfect people that all we see is the perfection of who they are. Pastors that make it to the five-year mark, according to him, tend to begin seeing growth. And marriages that make it to the eight-year mark tend to survive. And so hearing this, I wondered why would success take so long? And it came to me Friday as I was reading a book. Why does it take five years, right? Um, one thing that I lack in that I wish I didn't is patience, right? I remember when I took guitar lessons for one day. And when I couldn't play after one day, I thought, this isn't for me, right? And patience is not something I have. And so I look at it and go, why does it take five years? It talked about the time it takes to, be, to establish credibility with people that you're around. And the book's called Being Leaders. And there was these three stages that it said would take place over these five years that would establish credibility. These three stages were chaplain, pastor, and leader. And the first stage was members trusting the pastor over professional functions that a layperson couldn't do. And so they entrust to the pastor that he can lead a uh, communion. He can conduct a funeral or a wedding. He can do those things. We, we trust him with those things. And, and that tends to be the first stage. And, and as you move out of that stage into the next one, it's called the stage of being a pastor where not only do they trust you with the professional things, now they begin to trust you a little more with their personal things. And they bring personal issues to you. But the stage that you want to get to where growth begins to happen is the leader stage. And that's where the members trust you to lead them regardless of what you tell them. They just trust you. They trust that you have their best interests at heart. And he talks about this this credibility that you're establishing over this time that forms trust in people. And the book says you'll know the stage that you're in by how people reference you. This was interesting to me. Stage one, you're in that stage if they refer to you as the pastor. Stage two, you know you're in that stage when they refer to you as my pastor. And in stage three, you know you're in that stage when you're just followed willingly by people. And as I read this, I was thinking of the future of our church and And these were great in helping me process how we're going to proceed, but also to help me to cope with my inferiority, right? Because the book was the counselor that I needed in my life. And and I don't know why God led me in this direction five weeks ago, uh, but I want you to know that there's times that I let you down and I'm sorry. You know, this is the cleansing of my inferior feelings. There's times that I know I don't interact like I should, and I'm sorry. And there's times that I overreact when I know that I shouldn't, and I apologize for that. And there's times that I know that I'm not here as much as I wish I would, and I'm so sorry for that. And there's times that I make decisions, and and they're not popular, and I'm sorry for that. The root of contention is inferiority. And today I want you to know that if you compare yourself to others, The only logical outcome is depression or dragging the compared person down to cope with your own feelings. It's important today that you understand that the people around you are not perfect people. The man that you look at as the perfect husband is not the perfect husband. The woman that you compare yourself to who can eat whatever she wants and stays physically in shape, she's not the perfect person. Everyone has imperfections. And we, when we begin to embrace that, we begin to get over the inferior feelings that we have. Inferiority gives us the mentality of us versus them. 
And when I talk about inferiority, it reminds me of a man who had every right to process those feelings, but refused to not process inferior feelings. If you want to go ahead and flip with me, you can go to Job chapter 12, and we'll be in verse number 3. But I want to read to you the story of Job while you're flipping there. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, he literally loses everything. Like, this is not an exaggeration. He absolutely loses everything. And I'll read it to you. It's in, it's in the first chapter, but you can go to chapter 12. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabians, roll tide, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore off his clothes and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this... Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's an amazing story. I mean, if you can just picture this, it's almost as if Job's standing there and somebody gives him bad news and he's literally interrupted from that bad news for someone else coming and say, oh yeah, and all your sheep were killed. And oh yeah, all your oxen were killed. And oh yeah, all your donkeys were killed. And, and oh yeah, all your kids were killed. And, and if you can imagine him trying to process that, that emotion would cause me to ask a lot of questions. My first question would be, God, why do you hate me? Right? And, and we find that the first thing he does is begin to worship God. Because he says, well, God gave me everything and God can take everything. It's an amazing reaction to such devastation in his life. Like, here, here's what he lost in just a matter of minutes. He lost 10 children, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 ox, I mean, excuse me, 500 ox, 500 donkeys, and pretty much all of his servants. In just a matter of minutes. It would be equivalent to Warren Buffett waking up one day and them going, you have nothing anymore. All your money is gone, your houses are gone, you have nothing anymore. And Warren Buffett going, well, hey, God gave me everything, and if, if God gave it, he can take it too. I mean, this is the equivalent. Job was a wealthy man, and in the midst of his wealth, God removes everything from his life. You want to talk about processing inferiority, that's what would be the picture of it. Like if Job then said, God, why do you love them more than me? We could understand that question, right? We wouldn't have any bones about it. We'd be like, okay, God, why do you love them more than him? Because obviously he's made you mad in some way. But Job's immediate reaction is to praise God instead of blame God. You know, that's kind of the first battle that we all face with inferiority is understanding that God deserves praise, not blame. Because apart from him, we have nothing. And apart from him, we are nothing. But Job never charges God with anything. As we read through, we begin to understand that Job may not blame God for stuff, but everybody around him blames God for stuff. 
As a matter of fact, some of his friends come to him and they begin going, Job, obviously you've sinned against God. You have to figure out some way to be as good as we are because we still got our stuff and you don't have it anymore. And I love this. And this is the verse of what we're talking about today. 12.3. Job says, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And so Job looks at him and he says, what you're trying to feed me is a bunch of garbage. Right? You're not better than me because God has allowed things to be taken from me. Job understood that God handcrafted each and every person, and because God did that, he loved everyone the same. And so today, that's the question that I'm going to get you to challenge your life with is, I am, or excuse me, the statement I want you to challenge your life with is, I am not inferior to anything. Nothing is greater than me, because nothing is greater than he who lives inside of me. God does not have favorites. And so why would we ever feel inferior to another person? Because God is faithful regardless of us. God is faithful despite us. God is faithful even when I get in the way of his faithfulness. He is still faithful. Unfortunately, the enemy always uses our circumstances and our emotional instability to bring to light our inferiority complex. When I was seeking the medical definition of inf or why inferiority happens, this is what I found. There are many possible causes of inferiority, but they tend to be the result of significant events or of conditioned beliefs that come from continuous failure or criticism. Often parental attitudes can result in an inferiority complex if the child did not receive the right encouragement or unconditional love when they were growing up. So think about that. The inferiority that you feel inside of yourself comes from three different areas. One, it comes from significant events. Two, it comes from conditioned beliefs and failure because of those beliefs. Or three, it comes from the mistreatment as a child. Those are the three areas that they say that it comes from. So if significant events or conditioned beliefs lead to inferiority within us, how do we overcome those things? Let me give you some examples. My parents got a divorce, and so there's no way that my marriage will ever last. My dad walked out on us when I was a child, so I'll never be a good parent. My family is filled with addicts, so I'll never be able to come overcome that. My church has never been able to have peace, so we'll, we'll always be destined for turmoil. My job does not take care of its employees, so I won't last there long. Significant events and conditioned beliefs mold the inferiority that you have. But if God has shown us anything in the people he uses, is that your past does not define who you are, and what you go through does not define who, you be, who you'll be. Your past, your significant events, they don't define who you are. And the significant events and condition beliefs that we have will not define who we're going to be. That lie that people have has bought into over time, it comes from our inferiority and our feelings of inadequacy. We see what people go through. I'm not as good as he is. So unfortunately, I'm going to go through even worse. And it's this lie that we've bought. And what's sad is we've bought it in the church. 
Right? We know God is faithful. We know God is greater than everything. We hear about it every single week, and yet we buy the lie that God is allowing certain things to happen in our life that's going to cause us to be failures when we get older. But God has proven time and time again that our past failures do not tie us to failure. Instead, they open us up to great testimonies. Moses battled his inferior feelings before confronting Pharaoh to let the Jews go. And he was a murderer that lived on the run. But God used a murderer to save millions of people's life. When Gideon wrestled with the inferior feelings before a battle, he was scared nobody. He was such a scared guy that nobody would ever find him because he was always hiding in a wine press. And then God used him to take out an army and to restore peace in a nation full of turmoil. When Peter preached to thousands of people on Pentecost, wrestling with the feelings of unworthiness, he was an anger-filled, back-turning rebel. And God used him to set ablaze Christianity across our world. See, God doesn't allow significant events in our past to define what he's going to use us for. What we found over and over again is God allows that to be the testimony that thrives and pushes us into what he's called us to be. See, Peter let his past be the very thing that caused him to be the great evangelist he was. Moses knew how to care for people because he knew what it was like to take a person's life. Gideon knew what it meant to have peace because, or excuse me, Gideon knew the value of having peace in a country because all he had never known was fear and turmoil. See, God takes the things that we went through and develops us into the person he's called us to be. Our significant events shouldn't cause us to be inferior to other people. It should cause us to have a great testimony for what God's called us to be. God uses our past to develop an amazing testimony and not to let it shackle us to inferior emotions. I want to pose two questions to you this morning. The first one is, what has caused the inferior feelings within you this morning? If you were to take a, an honest self-assessment of your life, what are the deep-rooted uh, circumstances that's formed inferior feelings inside of you? And what's caused those was it a past that you went through that caused you to have those feelings? Is it the fear of moving forward that's brought about those feelings? You know, Jeremiah is probably one of the most honest men we read about in the Bible because he actually writes his feelings down on paper for us to see that he wrestled with things. Uh, David was another one. And so we read these writings of this prophet named Jeremiah, and honestly, it's a man who struggled with feeling inferior to God, what God had placed him to do. And so Jeremiah um, admits that all of his inferior feelings actually stem from him being a young man and feeling like that's going to prohibit him from doing what God has called him to do. I'm going to read to you in just a minute Jeremiah's struggle. Um, but I want you to understand that when God called Jeremiah, he was in his late teens, maybe his early 20s, but most likely his late teens. And, and so when you think about all the things that he had accomplished, remember that this is just a young man that God has called. Jeremiah 1, 4, of course, we know that one. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We all know that verse, right? We read that at baby dedications. And when we talk about sanctity of life, that's the verse that we use. But the next one says, and this is Jeremiah. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say 
I am only a youth. For to all to whom I have sinned, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to, said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so God calls Jeremiah. And his initial response is to push back against God. And his, and his answer to God's calling is going, I'm, I'm too young for you to really use me right now. Let, let me get in the oven a little bit longer and develop and to cook to the person that you want me to be. But, but I'm too young right now. And I love this because God kind of fires back at Jeremiah and he says, don't tell me why you are inferior to do what I've called you to do. I formed you and called you for this very moment. I formed you in your mother's womb. I consecrated you to be a prophet to all nations. That's why you exist. So don't tell me you're too inferior to do those things when I created you for that very thing. And then he said, don't tell me that you don't have the words to speak. As a matter of fact, I'll put my words in your mouth and you'll speak the very things that I've placed in there. It's important to know this morning when you wrestle with your feelings of inferiority that you understand that God called you, God equipped you, and God put his words in your mouth this morning. So why do you have any reason to feel inferior? If God called you, he equipped you, and he placed his words in your mouth, why do we have any right to feel inferior? With Job, it was the people he surrounded himself with. That's why inferiority at least buzzed in his presence. Now, he didn't personally experience it, but he had those around him trying to project their inferiority on him. His friends and his family, they wanted him to blame God, and, and they wanted him to feel inferior emotions because he was suffering. And so the question that Job had to process through all of this is, who do I surround myself with? Right? They, they felt like friends, even his wife felt like a good wife in the moment. But now when trouble comes, all of a sudden they turn on me and God. Who, who do you surround yourself with? Right? You ever been going through something and, and you have that negative friend who's always like, man. Like you go, man, I got a stomachache. They're like, man, it's probably cancer. I don't know if you're going to make it this time around. You know, like every one of us has that friend who sees the worst and everything. And we always go, why, why is this person even in my life, right? And Job had to evaluate that. And this morning, you're having to do that. Because the inferiority that you feel inside of you is rooted somewhere. And you have to figure out where it is. And if you can look inside yourself and go, I have nothing that causes, me, causes it inside of me. Then you need to begin to look around you and see if there's someone who projects it upon you. Job confronted his friends and, and he let them know very quick, I'm not inferior to you. The second question that I, I want to pose to you this morning is why does inferiority exist when God is in control? You know, and I ask this question not from some high place. It's actually something that I've been processing in my own life. You know, why do I ever feel inferior when God is in control, Right? I mean, I'm human, and obviously there's emotions that come inside of me that I wish didn't, but, I mean, why do I feel this way? But, you know, inferiority is such a tough emotion to overcome because it comes upon us when we least expect it, and it invades our soul with debilitating toxins that destroy our joy. If you've ever battled inferiority, you know joy is the furthest thing that you feel. Depression, anger, sadness, hopelessness, helplessness, 
those are the things that it invades your soul with. And unfortunately, all the things that we want to be evident in our life are the very things it suppresses. You know, David asked this question in Psalms 43.5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. If God is in control, why do we struggle with feeling inferior? We also know that in God's eyes, every single one of us are the same. Paul tells us that in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God does not see color, gender, social standing. Instead, he sees the handcrafted creation that he loves unconditionally. You're no greater than me, and I'm no greater than you, because the same God that created us both loves us both unconditional. There's nothing I can do that makes him love me less. There's nothing I can do that makes him love me more. He loves me because he created me. And this morning, if you ever feel yourself in comparison with other people, know that to be the truth of your soul. Is that God loves you despite that person and despite the things going on in your life and how much of a failure you feel like. God loves you equally as he loves the person that you're comparing yourself to. And so if God does not make one superior over the other, then why should we? God is in control of our lives. Our hope is in him. And what, is, what, what he establishes is confidence within a belief, right? It's kind of like if you ever have gotten into a fight when you were a kid and you knew that you had all your friends that had your back, you're like, man, I'm good. Like something happens, I'm good. Or, or, or you ever had some, you had an older sibling who would take up for you if something were to happen, you're like, they ain't going to do nothing to me. My, my, my brother or my sister is going to get them, right? That's how we face life as Christians, it's almost like when the enemy puts emotions inside of us, we should be like, well, I'm good, right? Because, I mean, God, who's greater than him, is inside of me. And so, right, we have actually this complex about us that there's nothing that can overcome us. Our hope is in him, and in him he establishes our confidence. And we know that we stand victorious in the end. Right? We're studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and we just finished 17, and we're going into 18, and then thankfully the following week we'll be in 19, and in 19 we read about the bride of Christ. But just two weeks ago, we read about when Christ came and he intervened in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And all the saints in heaven rejoiced because God was avenging the martyr's blood. What it gave a picture to us who are still presently on this earth is that God will intervene and God stands victorious in the end. And it's the very thing that gets me through difficult moments. To know that I can't make it, but God who is inside of me stands victorious and I stand beside him in the end. So why feel inferior when we know we stand victorious in the end? We know God is more powerful than anything we face. We know that God is unrelenting in his love. And we know that God is faithful. And if those things you know to be true, inferiority does not have a place in your life. doesn't mean that it's not going to come. The first time that you have any kind of uncertainty, inferiority will come in. When you and your spouse get in an argument, inferiority is going to come in because you're going to compare yourself to other people. When you're, you get the call from the school about your kids acting up, you're going to go, man, I bet no other parent gets this call. And you begin to feel inferior, right? We battle these emotions, but we should always be able to root them out of our life because we know that God is faithful, 
God is unrelenting in his love and that we stand victorious with him. And that confidence should overcome our inferiority. Listen, I want to close with this. You were formed in your mother's womb exactly how God wanted you to be. Exactly how God wanted you to be. So God made no mistake in your design and now he wants you to fill the fulfillment. He wants you to fulfill the fullness of his calling. So don't let people, circumstances, or your past withhold the amazing testimony that God has in store for you. You know what the problem with I is? Is it leads to inferiority. And you are not inferior because God is not inferior. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are, your love, your grace, your mercy. God, that you invade the souls of people who don't deserve it. God, that you take imperfect people and you make amazing testimonies out of it. And God, the very things that were meant to destroy us in our past are the very thing that causes people to know you in your fullness. And so today, God, I pray for each and every person here, God, as we begin a self-evaluation of who we are, Lord, that as we wrestle with these emotions and we wrestle with these uh, inferior feelings, God, that you would help us to see the root of the problem, and God, you would begin to take that out of our life. God, if someone in this, in this place today has some struggle in their childhood, God, that you would help them to see that you're using that for your glory. God, if someone was raised in a life of failure, God, that you would help them to see that success only comes at the foot of the cross. God, if someone's struggling with bitterness and anger this morning, God, help them to see that they don't have to tear someone down to them because you came down to us. And because of that, we stand victorious. And because of that, we stand accomplished in you. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you that chance if you're here this morning and you go, I feel inferior because I don't even know this God you're talking about. I want you to feel that invitation this morning to know that God is waiting for you at the altar this morning and that he wants you to know what confidence in him feels like. If that's you, I want you to know the invitation is extended to you. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with feelings of inferiority, God would love to meet you at the foot of the cross at the altar this morning.